0: Hello and welcome to Under the Skin with me, your host, Russell Brand. Thanks for subscribing to Luminary. I'm grateful. Remember, you can also listen to Above the Noise and you can listen to Dave Chappelle's brilliant Midnight Miracle here on this podcast. Even Jenny Mae Finn's nodding, unless she's having some sort of seizure.
1: Are you all right, Jen? Yeah, yeah. What have you been doing? Um, What's wrong? I have no idea. (laughs) Are you real? Are you tired? (laughs) I'm really tired.
2: Oh, yeah. Why? Why?
1: I wanted to figure out the sweet spot of how to miss the traffic to get here.
0: You think there's a sweet spot?
1: Too, too sweet. I was here at 7am. What are you doing here at 7am? <laughs>
0: That's t- when I'm carrying out my duties, my I... ablutions, my rituals and my ceremonies. I can't do all because that.
1: Because if I leave at half four, I get here near nine. So I'm trying to figure out the in-between. I didn't want to
0: be here at seven. No, no one wants you here, Jen. You are tolerated rather than enjoyed. (laughs) So this uh, is a lovely episode with Lisa Marciano, but let's have a, hold on, have I bantered you enough? Have you got a girlfriend? Have you got a boyfriend? Have you got anything? (laughs) Have you? (laughs) Did you enjoy the Euros?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I was in an English pub and I was trying to figure out who I was going to support. Who did you support? Well, I based it on gut feelings. Go on. Not England.
0: Not England?
1: But I didn't care if Italy lost. So you just hated on England
0: <laughs> and you didn't... Even they scored have...
1: in the first like five minutes. So then it's always better. Oh, get right. an equalizer. It makes it more interesting. That must be an interesting The enjoyable. atmosphere yeah, changed. Must so. have been fun. Yeah. Okay, so here's <laughs> the
0: comments from the brilliant Bradley Garrett episode. The YouTube video is doing really well. You we should check that on there. Um, we talk about sort of the apocalypse and prepping for Armageddon and the breakdown of society, even though, you know, let's face it, it's bloody inevitable. Society will at some point fall apart. This is a comment. Are you going to do a jingle on the old colour box?
2: Now time for <laughs> comments. Sorry. Oh, oh, oh <laughs> Good. I'm speaking, <laughs> C
0: Boyle says, I'm speaking from Ireland. Not many things give me shame, but Jenny may find... Uh... <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, that doesn't sound familiar. And we have thousands who, want, uh, who went off grid all around the country, not in bunkers, though, away from government control, etc. Oh, I want to go a bit off grid. Do you want to go off the grid, What about
1: Jane? the plumbing?
0: I, just, I, can, I can poo outside very easily. Electricity? I did you not hear what I said? I can poo we <laughs>
1: um, take anything from this
0: podcast. So <laughs> I can poo outside easily. Sometimes involuntarily. <laughs> Raspberry jam. My fallback plan is I don't have one. I'm walking north, plopping my ass, <laughs> me too, baby, into a snow bank and I'm gonna stare up at the northern lights till the cold takes me or become a pirate. I'm fine with either. Raspberry jam, that's no plan at all. Jen,
1: are you prepping? No, I'd die within a week. Probably. I don't um, even have enough food for tomorrow. <laughs> you,
0: could, you could die any minute. Yeah,
1: because I think I'm a bit hungry and then I should go to the shop. That's how I work.
0: Oh. Mind you, that's how Hunt the Goveries and Men live. Johnny C says, when you're in survival mode, politics don't matter. Well, that's a good point, mate. Now it's time for... Listen to Shout Out. Ginny, that, that is the most professional <laughs> we've ever been. Well it was done. the shouting
1: yellow bananas. <laughs> remember? I do
0: sort of remember this.
1: <laughs> you made a thing, a mnemonic device or whatever it is.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. What did, What was it?
1: Shouting yellow bananas.
0: Because it's a yellow colour. C-
1: shouting bananas.
0: See, you're the one with a bloody degree <laughs> in communications and I have to teach you about yellow bananas. What kind of relationship is this? Katie Johnson in Utah says, thanks so much for everything you're doing on Under the Skin. It's completely restored my joie de vivre and changed my life so positively with all the amazing content. You have a great gift of intellectual curiosity, the perfect blend of knowing enough to ask the deeper questions, but remain so open to new information, you never insert your own agenda. And based on your tolerance and <laughs> compassion towards the ridiculous Jenny Mae Finn, you have the heart of an absolute archangel. Well, thank you for that, Katie. Meanwhile, Emerson go. I just want to express my highest praise for your beautifully curated podcasts, badly edited though they may be. I discovered only a few weeks ago I'm slowly devouring my way through them, have discovered my own inner critical thinker, which whilst always felt his presence is now becoming the core of my moral compass and voice the engagement and relationship you have with fascinating guests is warm and respectful. I don't normally send fan mail, but I feel your role in this rather odd world will help many and warranted an email of appreciation. Thank you for that, Emerson. I really, really... Really appreciate it. And you should um, have a look at these YouTube videos we're doing now, where we put together different fingers in conversations and form sort of theories and ideas. There's some good ones up now. If you sign up for my mailing list at russellbrand.com, you'll um, get informed about that kind of stuff. But go over to the YouTube channel, some great stuff there. Hey, do you listen to Above the Noise? Jen, when was the last time you meditated? Why are you looking at me like that? I'm Why would confused. I go
1: listen to it and um, record it?
0: When you meditate, how do you meditate?
1: <laughs> I sit. Yeah. I light a candle. Oh. I do a bit of sage. Go on. Sit on my little bagel on my square. You, sit on you your know that I've got <laughs> the meditation you On your
0: little bagel. <laughs> it's a meditation cushion. It's a little bagel. <laughs> Jen, no wonder you're living <laughs> such a peculiar, solitary life.
1: No, you know there's my own cushions.
0: Jenny, I call it the bagel. I don't want to know about your <laughs>
1: private life, Jen. <laughs> I sit on it's a square cushion. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> and then a round one on top Oh, of it. God. So when you sit, anyway, just stacking it up.
0: You sit up on a little stack with a candle.
1: Yeah, sage. Look out at the sea. Well, my eyes are closed. What? My eyes are closed. Yeah, there's no way no, it not matter face, boss, out there, does it? Facing the sea. If your eyes are shut, what does it matter? Do 15 minutes. Sometimes I do 20.
0: Do a bit more. Why? Well, because I've noticed you're not spiritual enough. Now, <laughs> listen to this. Uh, Re La Dao Ching inspired meditation, Katie says. Wow. Well. Oh, no. Re the Dao De Ching. I thought, <laughs> <laughs> God, that's a long name. Jen, <laughs> Jen, <laughs> Jen, Jen.
1: That <This one's> good. <sighs> How did you think that was a name? She's in the five, same font. Five different words.
0: <laughs> I thought her name was of the Ching Inspired Meditation Katie. Because Jen, you've never used Re before. Why are you using Re now? <laughs> Because it's referencing that one. We're always referencing stuff we've never used <laughs> really before.
1: Come <laughs> <But> on <won't>, again, <laughs> it's too confusing. Katie says, it's "Another wrong
0: burgundy moment." <laughs> <laughs> Katie says, "Thank you so much for this beautiful meditation. I found the verse at the start very powerful, and in the meditation itself, my Dao De Ching meditation. That is, by the way, Katie. Uh, <laughs> it was so powerful. Oh, what's this? Anputa sacred."
1: Yeah, I was going to change it but then I thought
0: and put her
1: didn't I put and over it well in pen but. because I thought why waste I, I proof time. when I print because I'm better at checking but then I didn't want to put it in the pen mm.
0: I definitely found the piece and it also gave me the chance to connect with my inner child and heal her I felt the awareness to be something beautiful thank you well done thank you Katie for commenting re that down <laughs> 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 inspired meditation uh, hey, guess what, you lot? I'm doing live dates in the UK this morning with my new stand-up show 33. Tickets are available at russellbrand.com forward slash live dates. And uh, sign up for my mailing list at russellbrand.com and look at all my YouTube videos. But now it's time to enjoy a bit of Jungian analysis with Lisa Marciano. Let me know what you think. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a no, successful that, route. Yes, that's,
2: that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology.
0: What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? Welcome to Russell Brand,
1: Under the Skin.
0: Lisa, thank you very much for joining me on Under the Skin. Thank you for having me. I am... Thanks for establishing as well that there's a difference between an analyst and a psychologist or a psychotherapist mm-hmm. or a psychiatrist. I mean, I, I get mm-hmm. confused with the jargon, but I'm, as I said to you, a fan of uh, Jungian life. And uh, there's loads, loads I want to talk to you about, loads. Great. I, I'm, like your the book that you're um, promoting, Motherhood, Facing and Finding Yourself, is a... I guess is about your experiences as a mother through the lens of your profession. Is that right?
2: Well, it's my experience but also the experiences of other mothers I've worked with. So it's it's not so much it's a little confessional, but it's mostly about how I see motherhood as an opportunity for psychological growth on the part of the mother.
0: Wow. That'll be really interesting. I mean, yeah, I'd love you I'd I'd like to I'd like to have a conversation with you. Uh, outside of the podcast if i if i may i mean i've literally in the first sentence of the interview gone off on uh, to uh, in an ancillary direction asking immediately for therapy but i really would be (laughs) me and my wife i would really benefit from talking to you specifically about these about these issues i'm reading that sort of quote that um it's been provided about the, how the birth of your daughter brought unparalleled joy and the challenges of your you know your second child our, our, our children are kind of a just a sort of 17 18 months apart and wow. like we recently we went away like recently as in like yesterday we were on holiday i said to laura who i'm married to we've got to start not calling it holidays or vacations we've got to call it challenging time away from familiarity (laughs) and comfort (laughs) and like it's sort of like the expectation that those words uh uh, elicit are not meetable yeah
2: um
0: okay so like i guess then when you say that motherhood can provide opportunities for growth tell me how parenting that we've, we've just started here how parenting offers those opportunities for growth when sometimes what they feel like, you know, we're all aware of like sort of loving our children and stuff like, but like, it feels like a a battleground and like it's deleterious.
2: Well, but don't we learn most about ourselves when we're on the battleground?
0: Yeah. Right. Okay. So it's for for growth through suffering. It's not like (laughs) lovely, cozy growth.
2: Exactly. Exactly. I mean, so, so, um, I'll tell you the story of how I came to write the book, which is I was in Jungian training. So I was steeped in Jung's ideas and I I had baby number one and it was actually pretty easy. It was pretty great. And I felt like things were going great. And then baby number two came along. Mine are 24 months apart. So I had a two year old and a newborn and it was just really hard. It was really hard. And one of, one of these days when it, you know, it's like, I don't know about you, but mine would wake up at like four 30 and they'd be ready for the day. And I just, you know, I want to shoot myself. And, you know, it was like eight o'clock in the morning and it had already been a long day. And there was this just interminable stretch until bedtime. And, uh, you know, it was freezing cold, but I was like, I know I'll go for a walk around the block because, you know, what else are you going to do at eight o'clock in the morning? And so I'm you know, pushing the stroller in the freezing cold and it's getting stuck on tree limbs on the sidewalk. And I just thought to myself, damn, everything about this is so hard. And then this thought came and the thought was, and I'm growing so much as a result. And I was immediately like, wow, that's uh, what an interesting idea.
0: Yeah, it is an interesting idea, but it's very difficult to sort of transition from the to that in in the direction of that second thought like to regard you know suffering as anything other than an inconvenience do you think that sort of exposes a kind of uh like a is there something in our contemporary attitudes that prizes comfort and convenience so highly that struggle and suffering are seen as things to eliminate rather than accept
2: oh i think that's absolutely kind of a bedrock assumption that uh kind of flows through our culture, especially around mental health. And you, you asked if I was a psychiatrist, I mean, there are many wonderful psychiatrists. I'm, I'm not meaning to diss the profession, but in general, the medical model says, Oh, you're suffering. Then it, then that must be a problem. Let me take that away with medication or with some other kind of intervention. And, and a Jungian approach is fundamentally different. It's you're suffering, uh, where is that suffering? Where is it originating from? And what does it want from you? Mm.
0: Yeah. What's being asked, what's being demanded of you. And Mm -hmm. sometimes don't you find Lisa in general, that that kind of requires a contemplative space to even see it as an interrogative process rather than a trauma or a trial
2: Contemplative. I mean, certainly, it requires uh, a certain reflective capacity,
0: and as well as the capacity, capacity the possibility. And I feel like, a, like you know, th- th- let's just take the the example of parenthood. That sometimes it seems to me that there is no space for or time for contemplation. That it's a sort of an uh, uh, you know, like I'm a drug addict by by trade, and uh, <laughs> uh, and the, like for me, like what I want is that I'm shutting right down. <laughs> that's what like that. That's for me the sort of one of the drives that's expressed through my addiction is the need to kind of sever that like the influx of mm-hmm. like ideas and stimuli, and to sort of cr- create a kind of synthetic stasis and a, a kind of uh, yeah chemical womb to just prevent that stuff from happening now like the the thing i would say about like parenting but i'm sure we'll be applying this to, to other terrain is that it is uh, it's unrelenting
2: yes but but this is such a good point because it's true there's so much coming at you when you're parenting and there is this desire to shut down or shut off i mean i think most of us with, well, especially with young kids, but maybe also with teenagers can feel that desire to shut down, you know, every day. And the difference about parenting that I think can make it a real crucible for growth is that you you kind of can't, you kind of can't just shut down. I mean, you can, but, but then, you know, if you do it for too long, like you know that that's really not good for your kids. It's like the stakes are so high that it's really demanding something of you.
0: Yeah, the i that the idea of the stakes is never far from my thoughts. That I'm dealing with the formation right. of the most important thing in my life continually, yeah. continually, and like nothing has really prepared me for that. Really, certainly not uh certainly not the sort of kind of cultural values of individualism narcissism and like uh i don't mean that necessarily in the sort of a, a medical sense but like in mm-hmm. a kind of a cultural sense sure and uh, uh, and to find um you know the, the the requirement for service it's very it, it's a, like it's an interesting requirement to be confronted with now how can we talk a little bit Lisa as you do in the podcast this Jungian life about the application of Jungian analysis to cultural ideas mm-hmm. like for example um God there's so many there's things so that, many. <laughs> uh, yeah yeah there's so many things like I just did a, I did a video uh, today like for my YouTube channel on Britney Spears and like at times I've like thought about her as a cultural figure mm-hmm. a, a lot, but the she's done, she's, undertaken a fair few little mythic actions in the public space the self-shearing mm-hmm. moment her celebration as a virgin i mean she's a an archetypal gold mine yeah. and now she's been sort of reclaimed by a, a male parent let's call it a patriarch and <laughs> is, is it being sort of is sort of imprisoned like um I'm not suggesting that you as an analyst uh, undertake, uh, like scrutinize Britney Spears' mental health, which is an aspect of the story, of course, but I, mm-hmm. I, I mean more as as a cultural figure. What kind of, uh, do you f- find a lot of material there?
2: That's such an interesting vein to mine. You know, I, I'm not steeped in the story, so I, I I just sort of know the outlines. But the first thing that comes up for me is this very ancient story about the suppression and the wounding of the feminine. And that's, that's a theme that we see in myth and fairy tales. You know, if, if you think of the fairy tale, The Handless Maiden, the fairy tale begins with the father chopping off his daughter's hands in, in service to his desire for wealth. So Quite. I think you're right. I think there's an archetypal theme there
0: what some what, what happens in that fairy story who who wants the daughter's hands and why so
2: well it's always the devil
0: <laughs>
2: so what happens is a miller has fallen on hard times and he has no money and he's out walking through the forest and this man comes up and says i can make you as wealthy as you want if you promise me the first thing that comes to greet you when you get home and the miller says well that's bound to be the cat. sure that's no skin off my nose Russell, just as a, a point of uh, clarity here, if you're ever walking through the woods and someone promises you wealth for the first thing that greets you on your way home, never take the deal. It's always a bum deal in fairy tales. Because I, l-
0: I look for opportunities like that in my life. Yeah. And I think, hold on a minute, infinite power, three wishes, <laughs> spin gold, I'm in.
2: <laughs> and um, so, of course, it's his daughter who greets him. And he recognizes that he's made a deal with the devil and the house, the coffers in the house are filled with gold, just as the devil promised. But then the devil comes to get the daughter and the daughter who's very pious. There's kind of a Christian overlay on this tale, even though it's very, very ancient. Um, she surrounds herself with holy water so the devil can't get to her. And then the next day, the devil says, I'm coming back, but you know, take the holy water away. So the father does, but the next day, the the girl cries on her hands and she's, purified herself with her tears so the devil still can't take her. And he says to the father, chop off her hands. And so he does. And at that point, the devil doesn't want her anymore. So she goes wandering off. And I could I could keep spinning it out, but it's a pretty long tale. I, I do tell it in the book. It it's a good one. Story. Oh, it's a great story.
0: Yeah, it, yeah But I, it's,
2: a, it's a real story of the wounding of the feminine, either by the personal father or the cultural The cultural father when
0: dealing with ideas like masculinity and femininity in a Jungian context how is it distinct from maleness and femaleness
2: yeah that's a really good question well um, contested I mean this is not an area where that's particularly clear and I think that the ideas are continuing to evolve but Jung said that we each have an inner other that is uh, the contrasexual. So every man has an inner woman, and every woman has an inner man. And of course, Jung was a man of his time, and he conceptualized masculinity and femininity in fairly—now we would think of—pretty regressive ways. But there's, but he's on to something, and I I really think it's something that could be useful in our culture that you can identify say, masculine attributes of yourself, if you're a woman, and you can celebrate those and explore those and develop those. And Jung felt that this was an incredibly important part of the personality that needed to be engaged with and developed.
0: Yeah, I, I see. Did you see my dog? Just I did. There. I thought it
2: was a wolf since we were in fairy story land. That's a, there that's he a, is. That's a big dog.
0: Yeah, my shadow creature. <laughs> there he goes. Glorious beast! He's, yes, he
2: looks gorgeous.
0: Yeah, um, I suppose the way that like I'm fascinated by Jung, and and I suppose in particular by his evocation and of and appreciation of mystery, and the idea that rationalism, materialism and measurement can only take you so far Mm -hmm. it feels that for me at least that a lot of the challenges we face culturally are as a result of a kind of uh desacralization of um, the processes of life a lack of ceremony or at least of conscious ceremony and um do you, what do you feel about that, Lisa? How do you do you feel that we're living in a, in a somewhat desacralized and deracinated way as a result of the loss of this connection to mystery?
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely, and I think that um, you know you've put your finger on something. This was one of Jung's central concerns. Uh, he was the son of a. Pastor. That's some
0: serious bird song you got going. <laughs> like, are you in an aviary?
2: It must be right outside the window. Sorry, I could turn off the fan, but I can't turn no, off the birdsong.
0: That's a, I mean, there's, you should have that as a quotation on the cover of your book. The, <laughs> there's never
2: a problem with the shit hitting the bird song. So uh. <laughs> that's true. But but Jung's father was a pastor who uh, had lost his faith. And Jung discovered this, and it was profoundly disappointing. You know, his father, in some sense, was kind of a failed man because he, Jung was hoping that his father could uh, show these mysteries to him. And as he became an older adolescent, he realized his father had nothing to give him in terms of helping him navigate the mysteries or be exposed to them. And then Jung, you know, Jung the scientist, went off to university and became a, a medical doctor. And, and so he, he sort of, in some sense, spent his whole life trying to uh, understand and, um, and, and make those two things meet, science and, and spirit, as it were. And he saw very clearly how an overly rational attitude was afflicting his culture and it was afflicting his psyche. And that is only more true now than an overly rational attitude has stripped us stripped us of connection with instinct for one thing so it's i think it's a i think it's a primary concern in our culture and i have to tell you that you know the three of us started the podcast for fun sort of on a lark like hey let's do a podcast and we had no idea it was going to take off the way that it, it has and I always, I always think about it, you know, it's like, I don't think it's the three of us. I mean, we're, we're like, you know, I don't know. We're, we're nice people, but I think the culture is hungry for Young's ideas. And I think that's why the podcast has done well because people know they need this. They sense it, even if they can't articulate it. And then when they hear it, they're like, yes, that is what I need. You know, it's like water. Rain falling on parched earth. You mean there's another way to look at things? We don't have to just center it in materialism because traditional religions don't tend to do it for people these days.
0: Yeah, Why? what are traditional religions lacking that Jung is interested in offering?
2: Yeah, so what, what is it that Jung offers that traditional religions don't? Well, I will say that traditional religions offer offer something to some people. Um, you know Jung said that most of the people that came to him were people who had fallen away from their religion. and he would tell people if they came in and they had a kind of functioning faith, he'd be like, "You don't need me, <laughs> go home, you know um, cause, because that, that provides so its sort of a functioning relationship with something greater. Uh, that's what we need. Jung said, the telling question of a man's life is, is he related to something infinite or not? So how are we related to something infinite? If you go to church and that has um, aliveness for you, then that's your way of being related to something infinite. Um, But but church, for various reasons, uh, standard religions are, are more and more not filling that role. And so, so what does Jung offer? I mean, I don't think that Jung is the answer. I think there's a reason why a lot of people in Western cultures have turned to Buddhism and yoga and meditation and all kinds of different things. So it's not like, you know, here's Jung, the Messiah, bringing the new vision. This is now what everyone has to do. But some of the things that Jung brings is... Um, Well, first of all, he was really a phenomenologist. He just described what he saw. And he was really interested in what worked. So, you know, at some point, uh, an interviewer asked Jung, do you believe in God? And he said, I don't believe, I know. And what he meant by that, I think, is he he had had experiences of something that to him was God. And and there's that sense of this is just what is, this is just what is, I'm just describing my experience, I'm just describing what works. So when you're dipping into Jungian thought, it's a real invitation to value your own experiences. There's no kind of intermediary needed, you don't need faith, there is no dogma. It's do these ideas when applied to my life work? And and I you know I see that in in my clinical work, you know it's like so so do these ideas help people in a clinical setting? Well, not all the time, but a heck of a lot of time they help people a lot. At least at least what I see.
0: Lisa, how did what is the fissure that emerged between Jung and Freud at the uh, at the sort of advent of? psychiatry or um, you know analysis mm-hmm. as we understand it what what are the basic differences
2: mm-hmm. well there's let's see this is such an interesting topic and i, I don't want to go into it too much because it's <laughs> i could get into the weeds with it but so so um freud was older and uh young kind of uh um young was already well established when he became Freud's uh, mentee, as it were, acolyte, uh, but they, they kind of fell in love. I mean, Jung went to visit Freud in Vienna, and I, I think they you know they stayed up all night talking or something. It was one of those you know dinner dates that turns you know that ends the next day at lunchtime or something. It was, you know, it was just um, there was just this tremendous um, recognition that they were both uh, interested in in following the same threads. And there was tremendous excitement and energy there. And I think for Jung, you know, this this would be an example of the activation of his father complex. His father was a failed man without conviction. And here was Freud, who had a ton of conviction in his ideas. And um, eventually, though, you know, Freud was pretty heavy handed. He, he, de- he deemed Jung the crown prince. Jung was supposed to take over and inherit his legacy. But Freud demanded loyalty around certain ideas and really insisted on kind of uh, maintaining a certain power dynamic between the two of them so he wouldn't uh, kind of ever be a peer with Jung. There's, there's an interesting story about the two of them traveling to the States and sharing each other's dreams. And Freud was really insistent on you know his interpretation of Jung's dreams and didn't want to share his dreams with Jung. Now, what, the, the ideas that are important are uh, the, nature of, um, the nature of the unconscious and the nature of psychic energy. So uh, Freud thought that the unconscious was kind of the refuse bin. It's where things were that had never quite come to consciousness, that had been forgotten or repressed, and Jung agreed with that. He called that the personal unconscious, but Jung had this idea that underneath that was the collective unconscious that connects us all. And, you know, again, trash can, or just stuff goes that we don't need or we don't want to know versus Jung's conception, which is the unconscious can give rise to incredible creative uh, new content. Which, I mean, I think that, I I don't see how that can't not be true. I mean, we just know that any creative person has an awareness of that, that something just springs up from the unconscious that wasn't there before.
0: Yeah. I mean, wherever that creativity is experienced, where are these equations coming from? Where are these mathematical intuitions emerging from? What is this terrain? And it's interesting to consider the sets of cultural values that might emerge from even these uh, admittedly sketched distinctions i.e. the unconscious as a place of sort of Refuse and this is there's nothing happening here. <laughs> like a, right. and a, this abundant source of great power. I mean, yes. I, I, I can't help that that sort of plays out in ideas around patriarchy versus p- potentially m- more feminized and fluid cultural arrangements. A cu- the kind of um, mm, in intransigence of med- many modern political. Uh, systems could could, could, you can i can kind of almost feel their foundation in the idea that there's nothing happening there that we need to consider that everything that that what's down there is a problem
2: what's down there is a problem and needs to be controlled by ego versus what's down there is sometimes a problem and we definitely can't just give it free rein, but there's also tremendous, tremendous power and creativity there. And it goes back to the point that you raised before about that which is non-rational. So one of the main tenets of of Jung, as we're we're just landing on, is there's a value, there's a valuing of the unconscious and a value of the non-rational, which are essentially the same thing.
0: I have this increasing. Awareness of my own relationship with chaos and the way that that has played out in my life before being, let's call it what it is, domesticated. <laughs> uh, like, I sort of, it was more apparent that I was a kind of um, living a picaresque, uh, flaneurin existence through the world, spontaneously responding to stimuli. And that left me bereft in a lot of ways. Lately, though, I, I I've been aware uh, of something that that you you just uh, mentioned, the idea that um, that chaos is powerful but and not always dangerous. That's not right. always dangerous. Like that, where would social and political change come from were it not? from chaos it's kind of a a a conversation with chaos a relationship with chaos from allowing like because what does order i.e systems rest upon what does it repress control you know like that what is it in fact offered what is the, the the bargain that the sovereign offers to the governed i will prevent you from being from the threats that lurk beyond the gates and beneath our systems
2: and what comes through chaos like what are i imagine that there are real nuggets of gold in all of that chaos that that you are in the process of mining and and incorporating and integrating in a in a positive way you know there's the sense of where are things going there's, there's this idea in Jungian thought of telos that we talk about on the podcast a lot of the time. And it's like it's like the sense that life is not just a bunch of random occurrences, but that, that it's there's some trajectory there that we can't know consciously. But so if you look back on all that chaos, do you see a thread? Do you see how it led you somewhere that you may not have gotten to without it?
0: Yeah, and this uh, so tell us the idea that there is some kind of direction that there is some purpose trying mm-hmm. to unfurl. That sort of biologically we can acknowledge that that sure. like that anatomy has got a direction that a plant has a, like a seed or a plant has a direction. But when we talk about it in terms of like the actualization of consciousness, suddenly we're in the realm of mystery and like a, and sort of m- m- rational criticism can be ferociously uh, uh, unleashed for like, you know, even venturing such a, such a point. But for me, it seems clear that there is an, an unfolding, that something is trying to realize itself through the, you know, the expression of my life.
2: Well, let me, let me take you up on that point about rational criticism of Jung's ideas and like this one in particular. Okay. Like, obviously it's an idea. And it's, and it's an idea that can't be proven in any real empirical sense. However, going back to what I was saying before, I can, I can hold that idea, I can try it on, I can see if it fits, and it does for me. I can sort of see if that idea fits with the people I work with, and for the most part, it does. And then I can see if I hold that idea in mind and proceed as if that were true, what happens? Does my life get better? Well, yeah, it does. Does, does. How about the lives of the people that I work with? Do their lives get better when I frame their life like that for them and, and proceed with that assumption? Yes. So I, I fully admit that a lot of Jung's ideas are, are in this, um, well, it's the non-rational realm. And, and you know we, we live in a world where, where facts, are, uh, facts matter. And it's important to be able to differentiate things that are true from things that are false. And this is not a realm where we can do that in any hard and fast way, but we can see if these ideas work. And in terms of, of Telos, you know, um, it's that sense that I think that many of us naturally have that there's something that wants to come through us into the world. A lot of people come into my office and they say, you know, something's not quite right. Something's not quite right. I don't know what it is. And a lot of times it it circles around this. There's something that they're yearning for. There's something they're longing for. There's something that's being asked of them. Where does that come from? And Jung would say it comes from the, the deep unconscious, the guiding center of the personality that he called the self with a capital S, and it's this part of us that kind of has the blueprint
0: mm.
2: that knows what we were meant to do or meant to become.
0: And when we're talking about suffering earlier, like and, and like suffering being kind of somehow objectionable, which obviously, you know, experientially is, that, that there's a relationship there, I suppose, to look at sw- uh, suffering as a kind of a thwarted des- desire and to look at what that yearning might be. It's also interesting, isn't it, Lisa, that like that, Appetites and craving and desire are kind of perhaps would you say broadly regarded as sort of negative even though they're culturally exploited and they're the kind of other the, 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 these are the, the islets that we are hooked to our desires our appetites in terms of con- consumerism for example the way that do, do you think that appetites and desires are presented as sort of n- sort of negative primal, animalistic, and uh, sort of of somehow, uh, yeah, negative. You mean, uh, are you asking
2: if that's how I see them from a Jungian lens?
0: Culture. No, not you. Do you think that that desire is regarded culturally as something that should be... Is there a kind of a a, a puritanism still present in our culture like you know sort of around the libido uh, like life force in 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 general unless it's sort of being mobilized to towards the uh, agenda of the sort of culture unless it's like unless it can be commodified expressed through commerce yeah but so much
2: of it can be commodified you know i do think that there's lingering puritanism especially probably in the states around all kinds of desires um but but gosh they've done a really good job of of Commodifying it all and and then it's really sort of celebrated, you know. Um, but but of course, I I see desire as often I'm I'm curious what's at the root of it. So a desire for drugs or alcohol, you know, that's a desire for a, a transcendent experience. You know, the the, the Jung talks about when in his letter to Bill W. He talks about, you know, you're you're longing for a different kind of spirit. I mean, I I think at at the end of the day, most of our our mental health suffering comes from um, a sense of being cut off from that, that thing, from being cut off from the infinite.
0: (sighs) yeah and like a ways that you can find that connection can be through community can be through purpose but yes certainly sort of systems and ideas of meaning i yeah that um is obviously a foundational bit of literature in the 12-step mythology the correspondence between yeah. Jung and bill w and in it he sort of cites some psalm i think about talking about like panting on, a, a deer panting after water mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. the famous pit, bit of architecture that he provided for the sort of subsequent foundation of various 12-step groups around um addiction issues and alcoholism was that um yeah that it is obviously you know but like just to flesh it out yeah, yeah. like was um You know, that what's required was a sort of a transcendent or spiritual, uh, you know, a kind of epiphany or an awakening followed by the support of a community. And I feel like a lot of language around addiction, like even I I mean, the colloquial idioms around using drug addicts. I want to get off my head. I want to destroy myself. Like Mm. it's kind of. Like, yeah, this for me suggests an understanding that what needs to happen is the usurping of the ego and like 12 step philosophy, if you want to call it that sort of goes in a greater depth about the destruction of self-centered, you know, of egocentrism rather than uh, attachment to to chemical dependency. Mm -hmm. That's the, the a priori issue is you're addicted to you. You're addicted to this egoic structure. That's right. And until you transcend that, you're going to need all these palliatives and you're going to synthesize transcendence through chemistry.
2: And and what Jung said at one point was something like, you know, really what heals is an experience of what he called the numinous.
0: What does that mean? I mean, I know you...
2: So... Uh, it, um he didn't coin the term "numinous," but um, it was uh, coined, I think, by a, a theologian. Um, I believe it was Rudolf Otto, although maybe I'm getting that wrong. In any case, it, you know, the numinous, numinosity is that sense of, of knowing that you're in the presence of something larger, and and I think that the feelings associated with it are tremendous awe, and and probably even fear or terror. It's, you know, and and you can have that, you can have that experience. You know, um, I remember being in the the mountains in Switzerland camping and there was a thunderstorm and I was like, holy shit. You know, it's like, this is, this is bigger than me. You know, that, that's, that's numinous, but we can find that often just in dream images. You know, you wake up and you've had this really profound, this this dream image that sort of knocked your socks off. And, you know, it's something otherworldly. That's the numinous. It's an experience of the divine. And sometimes the divine comes in a, you know, beatific guise. But a lot of times it, it you know, it, it scares the daylights out of you.
0: Yeah. That's really cool. That's really cool that you've brought that up. Oh. Because I suppose, yeah, dalliances with numinosity—a kind of like—I feel like I op- occupy edge lands. You know that I'm that i feel like the edge of despair, the edge of rage, the edge of great joy, the a- edge of abandonment. This is sort of like part of my experience as being mm-hmm. sort of like a drug addict in recovery, a person on the path, and I feel like you know that that I encounter a lot of like Jung through you know peter like sort of whether it's i don't know alan watts or jordan peterson a lot of content like either contemporary or recently popular intellectuals and but i have like read uh, some stuff you know directly and it feels to me that potentially he could have been categorized as a a, a mystic in a different it had the sort of cultural setting been different
2: well that's that's interesting because there's controversies surrounding young and many many of his detractors will say that he was a mystic and they'll they'll say that in a sort of negative sense or that i think there's a book called the cult of young yeah 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 um and you know the interesting thing about that is i think he absolutely was a mystic i don't think there's any question and i don't think that he would have necessarily privately had an issue with that but he was trying to bring his and this is this this Point that I made earlier—that he was always trying to kind of stitch together science and and spirit—and he wanted to bring his ideas forward in a way that they would be taken seriously by the scientific and psychiatric community. So he's he's you know he kind of goes to great pains in some of his essays to talk about well the science the science the science—and and again this goes back to where he's a phenomenologist because he doesn't just start um, theorizing without pegging it to, but I've seen this, I've experienced this, I've had this experience, this is how I know this. I know this because it's happened to me. And he did all these kinds of inner experiences with these, you know, kind of inducing these waking visions that he called active imagination. So he really got to know his unconscious.
0: Sometimes I feel like, um, you know, like I'm dreaming when I'm awake that, uh, that I'm experiencing synchronicity and I'm uh, experiencing an ulterior and second language while I'm moving through the world. And frankly, it's blissful. Yeah, like the, I feel like I'm less at ease when I'm wrapped in my own sort of self-centered empiricism. When I'm like, I need to achieve this. I need this to be this way. This must be done. Like when I feel this kind of the selfless flow that re- for me requires a great deal of effort or you know, <laughs> paradoxically the effort of relinquishing control. Like the, I feel that like there's a kind of a... A great freedom in that. Could you um, explain to us the, the in, in obviously all of this stuff in the Jungian context the the meaning of the term synchronicity and what its value was and and like kind of I guess the challenge for any of us like in trying to use this kind of language trying to use these kind of ideas in the, a culture that is kind of in in a way radically opposed except for in certain sanctioned spaces maybe sport maybe art where suddenly superstition and carnival suddenly sort of accepted and embraced. Can you uh, maybe start, if you don't mind, if you Matt, if you could, like explaining synchronicity in this okay. context and sort of how that leads us into some of the challenges of this sort of uh, worldview?
2: Yeah. So uh, synchronicity was an idea that Jung developed in conjunction with the physicist Wolfgang Pauli. And he called it an a-causal connecting principle. And what he said was that... Um, there, there could be these um, experiences that happened in the outer world that corresponded to an inner situation such that a meaningful coincidence was created. And um, it, it, it's because, you know, essentially, and this is where he gets really mystical, you know, he he believed in a sort of this idea of unus mundus, that we're all kind of connected in this uh in, in this in this mysterious way that we can't quite describe. But just as an example of one of Jung's synchronicities, um, let's see, I think it was, I think he was talking to a woman who'd had a dream about a scarab and it was a significant dream. There were significant things going on in this woman's life. And then there was this sort of tapping at the window and he uh, opened the window and there was there was the closest thing in Europe to a scarab and it, you know, got onto his hand and he said, here's your scarab. It was sort of right at that moment. So, you know, the thing about synchronicity is that it's a fascinating idea. And, uh, I think we're all captivated by it. You know, as humans, we have a tendency to want to make meaning of things and to see patterns. And so, you know, I think we all, almost all of us could say, well, yes, there, there were times when I had an absolutely freaky coincidence that I can't explain. doesn't make any sense. Um, And then, uh, but, but, but it's also, it's also easily abused that, that concept, you know, people can say, I just, you know, I just, I just ran into my friend and, uh, you know, when, and I was just thinking about him and, you know, your friend lives five blocks away and goes to that store all the time. And, you know, maybe it's not such a huge coincidence that you ran into him. I think the, the, the issue with synchronicity is what is the feeling tone around the experience? And, and does it feel meaningful? It's not just a cool coincidence. Something about it feels really meaningful. And I'm, yeah, when, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. I do know
0: what you're talking about. It's like when it is the, when there's the sense or suggestion that like there is an, an there is a reach from some ulterior place that there's some object beneath that is reaching forward to you. And I've yeah felt it and experienced it for much of my life. And I like your characterization, Lisa, where you said like that sometimes it sort of like feels like angelic and divine and beautiful, and other times it feels ghoulish and yes fearsome and you know for me is that it, what could be more important what what can could be more important than the evolution and understanding of your own personal mythology to help you fulfill the various roles that you have to fulfill in your life understanding where you are in your life like this is like you know i am a father this is who i am now and if mm-hmm. i'm still in poor attorneys, there's going to be problems you yes. know yes yeah and uh, like and yeah, for me, this, this is vital, and it is uh, the foreclosure of this space and the castration of these ideas, for me, is a sort of a, a, a grievance that I take personally, even though I know it's an enormous yeah. and global problem. It's both, yeah. yeah, I guess it's both personal and universal.
2: Yeah, there's a kind of poverty in our culture. And we're not given many avenues to access the transcendent or the numinous or what whatever word you want to use. And that's one of the things I talk about in my book is that I think that there's a way that parenthood can be an avenue to that. How? <laughs> well, there's this, um, so there's, in, in the chapter I talk about um, th- this, there's a wonderful Polynesian expression, they say, Fishing for minnows, standing on the back of the whale. Joseph Campbell talks about this. So there's a way that we spend our lives. Most of our lives, we're fishing for minnows. We've got to get dinner on the table. You know, we've got to like make sure they get their homework done. You know, somebody's got to pick up the dry cleaning. We've got you know shit to do for work. Um, that's the minnows, and that's where we spend most of our life. We don't usually even notice that we're standing on the back of a whale. And that's that sense of the ground of being, of being connected to something greater, of having a taproot into the collective unconscious. So most of the time when we're parenting, we're really fishing for minnows because there's all this stuff to do. But then there can be this way that being connected with our kids, the profound love that we feel, or just the awareness of how, like, what a, what an incredible thing to to give life to somebody and then to raise that person and to know that they will outlive you into the future and and continue on in a world you'll never know that connects us to the infinite there's a story that i use in the book about the the child krishna so there's there's these beautiful very ancient stories about krishna as a child and in this one um he's he lives with his His mother, Yashoda, and his um, older brother, Balaram. I'm probably getting that name wrong. But, um, you know, he's a little toddler. He's an unruly toddler. And uh, his older brother says, Mom, Krishna has been putting mud in his mouth. And so Yashoda goes over to him and she scolds him. And she says, you shouldn't be eating mud. Do you have mud in your mouth? Let me see. Open your mouth. And he opens his mouth and she looks in and she sees all of creation. She sees the rivers and the mountains and the swirling cosmos and the very fabric of time in her child's mouth. And then he kind of brings the veil of illusion over her. She forgets it all. And all she knows in her heart is this profound love for her child. And I mean, I, that story is just sort of says it all. I mean, I, I think there, there, are, there are moments when interacting with our kids just brings into focus this the
0: infinite i did this show about um shakespeare recently i did like sort of performed these shakespeare monologues and used it to illustrate story stories from my own life like oh, oh, when wow. I was an adolescent Richard the mm, turning my ugliness into individual power uh, as an adolescent Caliban fighting Prospero the stepfather the, um, the this uh, when discovering Eurek's skull as an adolescent being confronted with death and Richard II's contemplation in the cell anyway, like and a different take on Henry V's Crispin's Day speech as a kind of an appeal to the wounded to come together on the battlefield of life. I kind of used it in a manner which mm. I guess you would mm-hmm. dig because it's like mm-hmm. using those stories in a... Uh, mm, Personal way, yes I suppose, but like using them literally and just using the mm-hmm. exposition as interstitially between the between the pieces, and where it kind of took me to right the, the broad journey being one from the pursuit of individualism and individual acclaim to the acceptance of the limitations not only of myself but of even that strain of thought that the pursuit of those ideals m- more generally was um like you know to uh, one of the sonnets is about the observation of a domestic vision of a mother pursuing a kitchen a chicken in her kitchen while looking after a baby and hmm. this you know and it's sort of kind playful kind of sonnet really and it ended on sort of prospero's um you know our revels now are ended and like you know sort of the great glow and the you know this, this is every the base fabric of consciousness itself is sort of like in it like shakespeare appears to be writing about the idea that we're imagining ourselves into life you know that the universe is indeed in young krishna's mouth veiled over by yes. sort of um banal materialism yes and um there was a point where I, I guess because I was using the words of Shakespeare as opposed to, as a person that generates m- m- most of my own material, rather than sort of, rather than climbing a ladder of my own language and ideals, I sort of was on Shakespeare's mm-hmm. ladder. It's pretty good. It me, yeah. It took me to this sort of giddy, vertiginous place. Uh-huh. And there was a sort of a point where I said that, um, and I didn't really even know where it came from of it's not that there's not enough beauty, but that there is too much, there is too much, that there is so much beauty that it's kind of overwhelming, and you have to like blinker yourself yes,
2: you do, I think that's absolutely right, you know and it, and when we're sort of open to that realm of experience it can be it can, that can be um that can be really overwhelming, and it can create that need to shut down that you were talking about before
0: yeah. Yeah, like the, but the being a kind of an open channel to,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know, and being sensitive and porous to. You know, the...
2: in in Greek mythology, you, if a mortal saw a god in his unveiled form, the mortal was killed instantly. Like we can't take too much of that archetypal energy; it has to be um, stepped down. You know, it has the voltage has to be lowered before we can uh, take it in or relate to it. Otherwise, it will destroy us
0: yeah you sort of see that happening don't you i guess with the conduits for greatness like that the fire burns too hot through them yes Mm. what Mm -hmm. about um here's a subject that i'm going to take an educated guess that you don't know a great deal about (laughs) but we'll be able to apply the the lens of archetypes to there's a football tournament on in europe at the moment known as the euros england won last night against the the, the, the oh, <laughs> fair enough i underestimated you <laughs> forgive me um like uh the um yeah england beat germany and yeah. like obviously there's a great deal of sort of um you know sort of military yes. history but sort of even even if you just sort of kind of confine it to football um, as it were and like to recent uh, social events it was kind of an overwhelming both personally and uh it's evidently culturally uh, uh, for th- this results kind of caused a f- sort of a fluctuation in the sort of national psyche i i wonder what you think about the significance of the you know nationhood patriotism the, s- the sanitized arena of uh you know sport or at least the m- managed arena of sport <laughs> um, and, 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 and what is the power that it operates within what is its source
2: yeah so so it's a great question especially following up from what we were just talking about you know and i'm going to start off with a quote that i'll not get exactly right but jung said something like religions are there to keep us from having religious experiences so in other words they're like a safe conduit instead of us kind of getting blown apart and and i do think that what gets activated in sport or politics stems from the same place. So Jung had this, he had this concept that he called the religious function of the psyche by which he meant. And, and I, again, I cannot see that this is not true. He, he, he said that we were, we are hardwired to seek transcendent experience to have a relationship with the infinite that we, we just, we just, you know, David Foster Wallace, the, the novelist says, you can't not worship. Mm. You're always worshiping something and, and you better pay attention to what you're worshiping because if you worship the wrong thing, it can eat you up. And I think Jung would 100% agree with that. So things uh, yeah. like um, nationalism and, and, you know, remember Jung lived through both world wars. He had a front row seat to World War II there in Switzerland. And so, so nationalism or ideologies can be a channel through which this really powerful, like I wanna say God energy flows, and it can be incredibly destructive. So Jung was actually very uh, suspicious of kind of mass psychology, I think because of the time that he lived in and he just saw the destructive side but when you're at a football match it can be really exultant it can it can feel great and you know i i don't think it's necessarily harmful but it is tapping into that um that kind of ecstatic experience you know yeah. the word ec- ecstatic comes from the root it means to stand outside yourself
0: Oh, cool, ecstasis yeah. You're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's so cool. That's so cool. <laughs> um, yeah, because um you know, to to our to, uh, we were discussing earlier the power of chaos and what I kind of felt when, like, after the final whistle, like the uh, Wembley, albeit in a diminished, socially distanced capacity, still a forty thousand people, wow. like, was in a kind of you know yes secular rapture could if there yes. could be such a thing <laughs> to like um like sort of um accompanied by neil diamond's sweet caroline right like in this kind of jaw good times ever seems like so was this real sort of shared euphoric you, you can see how that can yield to kind of bacchanalia like that mm-hmm. you could and and you know i guess you know given that you you sort of placed jung in the context of his time or someone did or something did at least uh, <laughs> like um that, that there was that obvious example of what happens when you know mysticism is unbolted when folk imagery and the power of the land and mythic themes can be kind of utilized i'm so fascinated by that and and it's pretty clear how the legacy of that has become a kind of banalized technocracy Mm -hmm. and um but i feel like yeah there's been a perhaps and and i don't want to say an overcorrection i want to say that just because because of what the evident goals of national socialism was both in terms of its military expansionism Mm -hmm. and obviously genocide that don't necessarily mean that unleashing those powers will always lead to military expansionism and genocide. It just means there is danger in chaos. But at at this kind of point of stagnation and homogeneity, Mm -hmm. it feels like there's a kind of a requirement for that. In fact, well, I don't know if there is a requirement. Who knows who cares in a way? But the only thing that could possibly challenge hegemony it seems to me is other comparable ideas that don't really challenge it at all, just sort of ornamentally alter it, or the harnessing of that energy.
2: Wow, that is so interesting. Um, first of all, I love that you use the word "unbolted," and I think I'm going to steal that because it's perfect, you know. And and it, and and what you said about you know kind of the, the harness, like that loosing that energy, and 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 kind of calling on the the, the folkloric history and that kind of thing. You know, it it makes me think. Did you have you read Jung's essay on Votan? No. It this is exactly what he talks about. He basically says, you know, what happened in Nazi Germany is because the god Votan got unbolted. And and it's a fascinating essay.
0: Who where, wrote that essay? Sorry? Whose essay?
2: Jung's. Oh, cool. Yeah, I cool. think it I think it's just called Votan. Um but uh you know, where he, he really explores what happened in Germany as an, a, a kind of an activation of an archetypal force that got completely out of control. So you, and, oh, and then you go on and you said something about, you know, that what's replaced it is these this sort of very controlled techn- technocracies, you know, that that are lifeless. And, and that's a danger in a different direction of homogenization and and sort of killing off any kind of spirituality and so what's the remedy and I can tell you what Jung said um cuz he wrote an essay where he addressed this um at the end of his life I think it was one of the last things he wrote it was a later work and he he said the the, the um the antidote to that to this kind of mass man and of course he would he would use that language but that kind of um you know, aggregating individuals down into these masses where we, we lose the sense of the individual um, is a personal connection with the transcendent. Not Not through some dogmatic church, but that each person to kind of retain that sacred individualism needs to have his or her own relationship with the infinite. That that's the thing that keeps us from just becoming part of a grinding machine.
0: Yeah, because, uh, you know, you said about Foster Wallace's kind of, uh, you know, the worship principle that, you know, addiction is full of devotion and patriotism is full of devotion and so is murder and like uh, all of these are kind of these you know yeah these what yates would call like that you know those i don't know that terrifying conviction or whatever Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um i feel like i feel like um uh, the perhaps the only panacea the only medicine for that would be A a kind of a point within, a kind of an inward connection to God.
2: That's exactly what Jung says.
0: Right then, okay. So we can use Jung to overthrow the government. Just (laughs) work out the wording. (laughs) Perfect. That's fantastic, Lisa. It's so lovely to speak with you. Um, I feel like like, I could talk to you for a long while, and this is interesting because I feel like I'm at a point where I would be really easy for me to sort of talk to you just sort of personally actually because there's loads of things I want to ask you about and um but like I've in terms of this podcast it's fantastic to end up, as I'm such a fan of uh, this Jungian life and I'm very much looking forward to reading uh, motherhood facing and finding yourself thank you thank you Thank you for listening to Underskin with Lisa Marciano. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram, tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets with hashtag Underskin. And remember to come and see me on tour or listen to Revelation if you ain't listened to it yet. Are you alright, Jenny? What are you doing? Why are you giving yourself a wee hit and <laughs> stuff with your finger?
1: Just being professional. Oh uh, yeah, that's real professional that. <laughs> and
0: if you're not meditating, meditate on above the noise. You can it's on the platform you've already subscribed to. All right. Hey, if you enjoyed this. Why don't you listen uh, to my other po- other episodes like the one with Professor Tom Oliver, the science himself. That's it. One example?
1: Yeah. Well, I thought use used a good example rather than t- one good and one meh.
0: Okay. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Under the Skin from Lumery. Goodbye.
2: <laughs> oh, Jenny, Jenny,
0: Jenny. You can put that in in post for God's sake.
2: <laughs> Thank you
1: for listening. Under the Skin Goodbye Thank you For listening To Under the Skin With
2: Russell Brand